Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That it with your latest NXT and AEW edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We will be breaking down everything that happened across NXT and AEW this week. We've been going back and forth between doing two separate episodes, one single episode. Silver King happens to be on vacation this week, so we're tying it all right in a package for you with a bow on top and breaking it down in one show, of course, this week. On that note, allow me to kick off this edition of the podcast with a reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about And yes, you can tell we are not using our normal setup, but nevertheless, please remember to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Please leave a five-star written review as well. Let everyone know how much you love the show. Tell them why you listen and why they should subscribe. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. And remember, I happen to love the number... Five. And I hope you do as well. Join us at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Become an official getting overhead for only $5 a month to get bonus audio, news posts, and much more. Again, all at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. As I mentioned, we will be talking NXT and AEW all in a singular show today. Um, we will see how this works now that Collision is involved with AEW as well. That's basically the equivalent of seven hours of wrestling that we're going to try to cover here inside of an hour on this podcast. Let's see if it works. Um, I did post that questionnaire on Twitter. Many of you answered that, and I do appreciate it. Unfortunately, you didn't give me much clarity when it came to your answers. There was a pretty even distribution of people wanting two separate shows, one singular show, only doing separate shows if there's a premium live event or a pay-per-view on the given week. So I appreciate the fact that everyone weighed in. Unfortunately, there wasn't an overwhelming majority. So I'm still going to be figuring this out. But let's use today as a test case. Because NXT is just two hours, and AEW will be talking about five hours of content, we're going to get NXT, I don't want to say out of the way, but we're going to knock it out first. We'll go to AEW second. As always, please remember there are timestamps in the episode description. So you can hit that up if you want to jump to AEW. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. So with NXT, Judgment Day opened the show on Tuesday with Finn Balor saying daddy's home and everyone got cheered basically due to their NXT experience. Well, obviously, except Dominic Mysterio. Uh, Damian Priest said they are not divided. They run WWE. Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams interrupted talking about running NXT. The confrontation got hot and contentious with a tag team match set as the main event. Uh, Definitely a great opener. It set the stage for Judgment Day's invasion of NXT. My hope and expectation was that they'd be involved elsewhere on the show and do more than just this, meaning the opening segment and the main event. But let's get to the main event. It was Mello and Trick against Balor and Priest. Uh, Trick got a hot tag against Priest. Mello sold the shotgun dropkick like he actually took a shotgun blast. Balor missed coup de gras with Mello nailing a springboard clothesline. Mello then countered South of Heaven with a stunner, only to eat a headlock driver. Priest hit Razor's Edge on Williams into the edge of the announce table, but then ate a code breaker back inside. Dominic Mysterio distracted as Hazeman for the finish. Then he distracted with a chair so Priest could use the money in the bank briefcase. So Mello's new number one contender, you'll learn his name in a minute, uh, came to the ring. He was trying to help, only for Mello to get run into him before eating South of Heaven and getting taken out by Balor with a coup de gras. Judgment Day then stood over Mello as the entire faction celebrated. And then, of course, you had Mello and that contender arguing at each other as NXT went off the air. So look, this was obviously a 
totally excused loss for Mello, especially given the circumstances. And they clearly used it to begin the storyline between him and this next contender. I get it. But given Mello already lost to Balor clean on Raw, and you have Trick in this match where he could easily take the L, let the dude just take the L. Like, do the same finish, but have Trick blind tag late trying to save Mello only to get outnumbered and lose. It didn't detract from a fun match in a great episode of NXT, but it seemed easy enough to execute Mello not taking the fall while telling the same story, so I was just surprised by the outcome. Everyone got a chance to shine here, though, and Trick stood up nicely against Priest. His ceiling remains really high. He just needs to get more singles work to really become a truly formidable pairing for Mello. Judgment Day on NXT, I would call it successful. The ratings did prove that out. And as you'll hear in a few seconds, we're going to be getting more of it. So Wesley was backstage, uh, pleased to defend his title against Mustafa Ali at Great American Bash. He said, it's tough to get a read on Ali. Suddenly, Dom and Rhea Ripley came up, with Dom accepting an open challenge for the title that was never issued. Wes said he would make it happen anyway, but Dom instead suggested they do it next week so that Wesley has time to prepare. Interesting that they're putting at least Dom back on NXT next week. I would assume Rhea Ripley goes with him. Even more interesting that it's going to be his first ever NXT match, despite him being less experienced than everyone else in Judgment Day. So really curious to see how he's going to do up against someone like Wesley in this type of environment. Isla Dragunov fought Braun Breaker in what was basically a de facto number one contendership match. Backstage, Breaker said Dragunov wasn't even on his radar and made a mistake of getting in the way of a badass who cannot be held back from breaking him. Isla later said he felt Braun's power, but he'll deliver intensity and fury that will not be matched. Braun was a beast all match. He just pummeled Isla like really, really stiff blows. Uh, They did the vertical suplex over the top rope spot, then had an extended exchange of German suplexes. There was a somewhat botched flying bulldog spot before Dragunov basically did a Death Valley driver into the corner. Dragunov added coast to coast and torpedo Moscow for a 2.5 false finish. Breaker could have sold it longer. I didn't love that he kicked out so quickly. Braun then spike speared Isla out of midair for a much better false finish. Dragunov countered the press power slam into a DDT and hit a really high effort powerbomb for another false finish. He came back with the falling forearm for yet another, but Braun took his head off with a forearm uh, Lariat style. Dragunov followed with a flying headbutt to the back of Breaker's neck off the ropes, shooting the half for the one, two, three. And folks, holy shit, what a effing match. Undoubtedly top five in Braun's career and another absolute banger illustrated by Isla. It was expected that Dragunov would win given Breaker just failed in his rematch for the title. So doing another one just wouldn't have made sense. Now it seems only a matter of time for Braun to get called up to the main roster, probably the week after SummerSlam. He's proven that he now has the character chops with this heel turn. The question will be if they can turn down the corny quotient of the entire thing. His tights said badass breaker, which is not only corny, but say that slower. Badass breaker. Not great, okay? Mello and Isla, that's going to be an absolute must-watch match. It's going to be really interesting to see what direction that goes and whether that is similarly Dragunov's last NXT match ahead of a call-up. It's possible that happens as well. I don't see the rush to put him on the main roster, but apparently there's rumors that Creative wants him up there. I went 4.5 stars and an A for this. Four slabs of beef. There's a lot of beef out here. And it's time that we start talking about Dragunov in the best wrestler in the world conversation. I am not saying he's number one. He's not number one but he belongs in the conversation. That's how good he is week to week. 
Baron Corbin was back with another vignette in which he was proud of himself for torching his past, but nevertheless remained uncertain about his future. He got in his G-Wagon, saying he had nothing in common with his old self. So he was trying to find himself. He comes into a field that had a bunch of tiki torches lit, and then the thing just ended. So it was a nice follow-up to last week, like the first five-sixths of it. But I have no clue where it's going or what Corbin's gimmick is going to be. And you know what? It's kind of nice not knowing. Like, I'm intrigued. I want to see what they do. He's doing a solid job telling the story, and I'm definitely here for more of it. Uh, Tiffany Stratton fought Ivy Nile in a non-title match. Nile showed longing for the Creed brothers pulling at a shirt of them before the bell. The Chase U students were all over Stratton for tapping out to Thea Hale. Nile avoided the double back handspring and hit a mediocre version of Julius Creed's signature slam. She caught Stratton in the Bulldog, only to get thrown into the middle turnbuckle, planted with the forward roll, and squashed with the prettiest moonsault ever for the Tiffy victory. So after the bell here, uh, Stratton ranted on the mic about not tapping out as the Chase U students chanted at her. Then later backstage, Nile was furious about her loss when Schism, with a half dozen extra minions, confronted her. They told her that they're getting stronger than ever, and they offered her a spot to join. But as the minions walked out following Schism, the last two looked at her kind of longingly, and it was very clear from their bodies, primarily their necks, that they were the Creed brothers. So look, this probably was Ivy's best match to date, the right winner obviously being the champion here. But Niall did well enough for herself where you could make a case that she can learn the rest on the main roster. We thought the loser leaves NXT match was it for the Creeds, but there were rumors out there entering this week that they may not actually be getting called up, which would obviously make last week's booking nonsensical and confusing, meaning they played us because we were thinking about Dyad being the ones leaving, but they did the creeds, but they're actually not leaving. So we're really going to have to see how this plays out. Uh, But seeing them masked in this segment, it does appear to confirm that they're not done or they're at least not done yet. I'm not sure I understand, again, the point of this, but Shawn Michaels has been trustworthy from a creative standpoint. So let's see before we criticize. Maybe it's going to be like when Santos Escobar came back to grab the rest of Legado del Fantasma. That was a different type of story, though. Uh, Chase Yu fought Drew Gulak and Charlie Dempsey in a tag team match. Bronco Nima and Lucian Price watched from inside the arena. Duke Hudson hit a hurricanrana, which was pretty impressive. He also hit an avalanche body slam. Chase got the Chase Yu stomps and Thea Hale out of nowhere, put Gulak in a full Kimura standing outside the ring. The referee somehow didn't see, and the guys combined hit the fratliner for the victory. I actually assumed the heels were going to go over here, but perhaps this is the end of this feud after all. Really entertaining match with all three of the faces impressing. It's going to be interesting to see what they do from here and how they capitalize on Thea's momentum because she's really becoming one of the top women on the brand right now. And we got a little bit of an answer to that when Hale was really fired up in the locker room with Hudson and Andre Chase uh, trying to get like a rematch chant going for her. And the assumption is that that's going to happen. I remain surprised at her quick progress, but Thea against Tiffany at Great American Bash makes a lot of sense to rematch it, given the storyline and the quality of their first fight. Stax fought Joe Coffey. Uh, Mackenzie Mitchell interviewed Tony D'Angelo in jail before this. Tony said he was at Stax Mercy, and he wasn't sure what to expect. The stipulation here was D'Angelo would get the charges dropped, with the family getting a tag team title match if Stax wins or... Gallus would retain the charges with D'Angelo going to trial if he loses. Apparently, the Orlando DA does not watch NXT. That's what we have to assume by this uh, storyline here. Uh, Coffee destroyed Stax and hit all the best for the Bells, which would have led to Stax becoming the Don, except he kicked out in a false finish. Coffee was infuriating, saying they had made a deal, but Stax screamed back, I ain't no snitch. 
D'Angelo literally then called into the broadcast from jail and they put it live on the PA in the arena, in the performance center. And he was laughing that Gallus took the bait. So Nima and Price walked out again during the match, eyeing the champions. Uh, with the referee distracted, Stax used a tire iron on coffee, only to throw it to Wolfgang and sell the shot Eddie Guerrero style. Then he caught coffee with a kick and hit a stomp using his knee instead of his foot for the win. The highlight here was Tony calling in from prison, presumably using that phone bank that you always see laughing to himself while this was happening. The visual would have been really funny to see him do that. The wrestling was solid with Stax clearly improving. The storyline payoff, you know, it made sense, even though it definitely got convoluted for a bit. The family will probably win the titles of Great American Bash, at least that is my assumption. In footage from last week, Eddie Thorpe was excited for his NXT underground win, while Gable Stevenson talked about being unsure whether he wanted to continue throwing people around in NXT or pursue another national championship or an Olympic gold medal. He just kind of went back and forth about all three of those. Then Dijak was backstage, angry that the PC recruits were impressed by Thorpe winning one underground match. There wasn't anything else to it, but given Stevenson has been legitimately undecided about this for a while, it was interesting to see it used on screen. He impressed in that really short burst last week. My guess is he does the amateur stuff and continues prolonging his WWE career. But you must imagine WWE is getting impatient at this point. Like it's been two years now. And I know he it was planned for him to go back to college. And that's fine that he did that. But the understanding was once he was done, he would be with them. And now he's talking about Minnesota and the Olympics and competing in these other amateur wrestling events. They have to be frustrated by it. I know I would be frustrated by it. Uh, Thorpe Dijak makes a lot of sense as an upcoming feud. Dijak should probably win that one, though. Uh, Blair Davenport backstage was pleased about destroying Roxanne Perez, saying the division is for grown-ass women, not little girls like Roxy. Blair said girls like Roxy don't beat people like her, promising to leave her on the shelf like all the other women she has attacked. Strong promo from Davenport. I think it's the first time she's really gotten to sink her teeth into something since moving to the United States. Cora Jade fought Kalani Jordan. Cora dominated until Kalani got a run where she whiffed on a back handspring elbow. Jade caught her trying to springboard by kicking the ropes, and she hit her DDT finisher for the win. Cora went to use her kendo stick, only for Dana Brooke to get up on her and stand tall at the end. Jordan, she's just too green to be on TV at this juncture. She's not ready for prime time. Tough to judge Jade here because she was working with a neophyte, but she doesn't seem to be improving that much. A bigger issue is the finisher. It's a simple double arm DDT. She doesn't even execute it particularly well. You gotta do something different for her going forward. Gigi Dolan got a promo package talking about facing her demons while Kiana James hides all of hers inside. Gigi showed photos of Kiana as a more wild child before NXT, saying she embraces herself while James lives a lie. Kiana in the women's locker room was embarrassed by the video and she started deleting photos on her Instagram. I would say the story, it's interesting from a modern perspective, but Kiana's acting remains just atrocious. She really needs to get better in that regard. The positive is it's another women's storyline without a title, and the main roster could really learn something from that. Although the main roster is actually doing a decent job with that on Raw right now, but generally they could learn a lesson from that. Von Wagner admitted to Mr. Stone that he got carried away last week. He revealed that there's a titanium plate keeping his skull together and said he became a monster to combat all the teasing from his peers. Wagner said getting cheered last week made him feel like himself for the first time, and he thanked Stone for helping him do that. It's just so hard to criticize this because, you know, it's a real life story. It takes a lot of balls for Wagner to share this stuff, no doubt, 
but the segments are so robotic that it's tough to actually care about them. You know what I mean? Uh, Ulisa Leon and Valentina Ferois were ranting in Spanish about metaphor when Angel Garza and Humberto Carrillo stepped up offering to entertain them for the evening and put smiles back on their faces, which was pretty funny. Uh, Leon criticized them for not introducing themselves before hitting on them. Then Dragon Lee and Nathan Frazier came up getting their backs, and that's presumably going to lead to a tag team match, one would think, next week. Finally, okay, I've been waiting to see Garza and Creo in the ring after they returned weeks ago. Their ceiling is so ridiculously high. D'Angelo family, they should probably be transitional champions to strap up Garza and Creo as soon as possible. So obviously we have Great American Bash coming up soon, but not quite yet. For NXT, I would say the build has been strong across the board. They're doing a really, really solid job. Week to week, the TV is consistent. And this was another super entertaining episode from start to finish. It certainly does help that they have these main roster talents coming down, Seth Rollins, uh, the entirety of Judgment Day here. I wouldn't say so much Dana Brooke, unfortunately, no offense to her, uh, but Garza and Carrillo. There's a lot of interesting things that they're doing right now, utilizing this main roster talent, particularly from Raw. And I just kind of hope it continues in a smart way, exactly the way that they've been doing it. Corbin is another person, obviously, who's doing a good job having just come back down there. So uh, NXT remains hitting on all cylinders. I wouldn't say this was as great an episode as we've gotten maybe some of the last weeks, but man, that breaker Dragunov match. If you only listen to these recaps and you don't watch NXT every week, I would say go out of your way to watch that match bell to bell. No doubt about it. All right, folks, that was NXT. It is now time for us to get into AEW, where we have not two, not three, but five hours of programming to break down all at once. So we are going to mix up Rampage, Collision, and Dynamite. We're going to do it based on storyline and based on tournament, given there are two tournaments ongoing, of course, right now. Um, Overview of AEW this week. I think it was probably one of the best most consistent weeks of AEW TV that we've gotten this entire year, especially since the start of Collision. Since Collision, it's really gone back and forth. I thought Collision was better um, the first couple of weeks. Dynamite was better last week. And then I do think Collision again was better this week. So it still has the three to one, you know, winning percentage or or, uh, 75% winning percentage head to head, like if you're going to make comparisons. But Dynamite did not suffer this week like it did the prior weeks where I thought Collision was the better show. Rampage, I got to tell you, maybe the best Rampage of the entire year, not in terms of match quality necessarily, but in terms of like relevance to AEW storytelling along with match quality. It didn't feel like a throwaway show for once. Like when I watched it, I wasn't annoyed that I spent, you know, 35 minutes, which I did watching Rampage, you know, after I was able to skip the commercials and stuff, Um, where most weeks I run through it in 15, 20 minutes and I feel like, it was a total waste of 15 or 20 minutes. So credit to Rampage. Collision, we'll talk about. You'll, you'll understand soon why I liked it so much. And Dynamite certainly was entertaining as well. So we're actually going to start with Rampage here. Sammy Guevara and Daniel Garcia against Matt Hardy and Jeff Jarrett in a blind eliminator quarterfinal. Another one of these supposedly random matches where two friends and faction members are teamed. The JAS guys won after Sammy hit GTH on Matt and Garcia got the cover following a blind tag right before that move. Guevara seemed bothered by that, of course. The Jarrett crew attacked Matt after the bell with Isaiah Cassidy making the save and getting chokeslammed by Satnam Singh. After way too long, Ethan Page decided to make the second save and cleared the ring by himself. A bunch of whatever this was. Uh, I thought they were doing something with Page, only for him to go right back into the stuff one week later. That was disappointing. 
On Rampage, Matt Seidel and Trent Beretta fought Brian Cage and Big Bill in another blind eliminator quarterfinal. Finally, a match with two truly random pairings. The heels caught both faces flying for a boss man slam and a brain buster. Beretta hit an avalanche release German suplex and pile driver on Cage, with Seidel adding a flying meteora on the canvas for a false finish. Bill came back with a chill slam on Beretta and a running clothesline out of a powerbomb setup with Cage for the win. This was a blast from a work rate standpoint. The right team won. I'm actually going 3.75 stars and a B plus. I wouldn't go out of my way to see it, but if Rampage is on your DVR, give the second half a watch of this match for sure. On Dynamite, Darby Allen and Orange Cassidy fought Guevara and Garcia in a blind eliminator semifinal. Prince Nana came down randomly grabbing Darby's skateboard and telling Garcia to use it. This led to a referee distraction as Swerve Strickland caught Darby with a flying knee from out of nowhere. Sammy then hit Darby with GTH and got the win. Sammy still shook Darby's hand after the bell, so that's obviously notable. In a match of two random teams, quote unquote, that were anything but random, the finish required an interference from someone already eliminated from the tournament who already had his own match scheduled for later in the show. I just kind of found that to be ridiculous. I know they're trying to now tell a Swerve and Darby type of story, going back to their days like in Seattle, the uh, Pacific Northwest and stuff. But it's just like, let the match play out and then maybe do it at the end. It it just felt weird to me the way this was booked. It's really the best way I can put it. it I thought it was odd. Uh, the whole tournament, it just remains an eye roll for me. Really the only legitimately interesting part of the entire thing is MJF and Cole. And yes, the entire tournament is basically a vehicle for their storyline, but it still was ill-conceived and not properly built. I don't think they ever like officially released a bracket. Um, teams weren't announced all at once. It was over three weeks. And then there was randomly matches that happened. And they would say, oh, by the way, these two are were chosen from the Blind Eliminator and they're in the match. You could tell that it wasn't like completely set up before it started getting executed. Now, I did all that on top here with the Blind Eliminator so we could get to the real quote unquote main event of AEW, which of course is MJF and Adam Cole. So they brought it out at a bar with MJF again bothered Cole wasn't wearing their new shirt. Some women made a pass at them. MJF wanted them to tag team the women, of course, but Cole uh, said, hey, I'm committed to Britt Baker. MJF went to the bathroom with all four of them and zipped up his fly walking back out. Cole confessed that he had the shirt, but would only wear it if they did what he wanted to do next. And that was play AEW Fight Forever. MJF admitted it's more fun playing video games when you have a friend with you. And Cole was surprised he had never played a multiplayer game before with MJF admitting, hey, well, you know, you need friends for that. This was probably the best advertisement for Fight Forever that they could have done. No question. Uh, They each admitted that their plan initially was to turn on the other one. Cole said MJF was cool. And MJF shared the same sentiment with them, both agreeing to come together and actually do this and win the tag team titles. Later on Dynamite, Cole again blew off Roderick Strong because of a text from MJF. This wasn't necessarily as great as the last couple of weeks, but it was still the best thing that AEW did across the five hours of TV. I presume Cole will get a babyface pop when he has enough of MJF shit, turns on him, then challenges him for the title again. But for now, this remains a bunch of fun each week. The strong aspect remains interesting, but it's tough to imagine he turns on Cole because of this. And even if he does, to what end does that really make sense in the long term, unless it's used as an excuse to cost him the AEW title against MJF, that way he doesn't lose clean. So we'll have to come back to this as it continues to progress. 
On Dynamite, MJF and Cole fought Cage and Bill in the other semifinal. MJF hit a high effort body slam on Bill to a massive pop. Then he called for a double clothesline, but Cage avoided it, and Bill took them out one on two. MJF ended up hitting Heat Seeker on Cage, with Cole laying the boom afterward for the win. MJF grabbed the mic, saying he's super over, before egging Cole on to doing the Bay Bay gimmick. MJF then promoted the t-shirt and got them chanting double clothesline. Cole said their goal is to win the tournament and get a title shot in Connecticut. Then he promised if they stay on the same page, they will become the new tag team champion. Strong was again angry watching this backstage. This was all fine. It was mostly a continuation of their bro down segment in that they're playing as if they're on the same page and therefore unstoppable. We'll have to see if it actually plays out and to what end. But the entertainment factor was obviously there. And look, I know there's people that say, look, in no way should these guys win the tag team titles, especially over FTR or a legitimate team. But I'll tell you this right now. If you care about entertainment and fun and stretching out this story without MJF perhaps needing to defend his title, putting the tag team straps on them, man, that would be a lot of fun. And you only need to do it for like a month and you can take it right off them real quick and then book the title match for all in. You could totally do it. I Do I think they will? No. If I had the book, I think I'd probably book them to win the titles. And the biggest reason I probably want it is because it's the exact opposite of what all of us would expect. On Collision, CM Punk fought Samoa Joe in an Owen semifinal. Punk opened the show with a promo where he stood ringside in front of the crowd saying this was the biggest match of his career. A smart fan in the crowd immediately yelled back, no, it's not. No shit, it's not. Uh, Punk then instructed the crowd to chant Owen, saying none of the wrestlers would be there without Owen Hart. I love Owen Hart. Uh, as a wrestler, he was great. That's obviously not true. That None of them would be there without him. Uh, this was just cheap pop after cheap pop for Punk. And honestly, it was just kind of off-putting that he used Owen's name to this extent. Maybe I'm off base feeling that way. It's just how it came off to me as a viewer. Oh, Punk also came out with pink highlighted gear. I should mention that as well. Uh, Punk hit a long elbow drop on Joe, but he countered go to sleep with a cross face. There was a triple counter with Punk hitting a neck breaker, and he followed by countering Coquina Clutch into a pinning combination for the 1-2-3. The post-match was three minutes of them staring at one another. Some fans chanted CM Punk, others chanted Owen Hart. They shook hands, and then Joe put Punk to sleep in a Coquina Clutch. He went to use a chair, and then FTR, of course, made the save. I saw some comments out there praising this match. It was good, no doubt about it. I didn't think it was anything special, nor was it worth the hype of being 18 years in the making with all these video packages. I mean, if you are a Ring of Honor fan and you saw their initial feud, then I'm sure you were super hyped for this. But it was a good match and nothing more as far as I was concerned. Um, Given the extensive promotion, I just was expecting an A match at a minimum It didn't get anywhere near that as far as I was concerned. Punk over Joe was obviously the right booking. And even with the -the over-the-top Owen stuff, him being in the finals makes all the sense in the world. There was another QTV segment with Holly Cameron stuck on the whole Anthony Bowens thing. Then they showed a clip of Johnny TV throwing and kicking his phone into a trash can after listening to the Acclaim's latest music. On Dynamite, we saw a premiere of Holly's rap music video. It was shockingly great not exaggerating, like I preferred what she did in this video to every video we've ever gotten of the acclaimed. She had legitimate talent on the mic. So what have I said about these segments? They're trash unless they make me laugh, right? The Rampage segment was trash until Johnny kicked the phone. 
That made me audibly laugh. And then Holly fully delivers on Dynamite. So, okay, the hit rate on QTV now is about 10%. I'm shocked to even say that. But I'm going to tell you this right now. I was super impressed by Holly. And Johnny adds the actual comedy factor that QTV has been failing to get because none of those other guys are actually funny. So was this a good one this week? You bet your ass it was. That was a good one, yeah. And I would like to hear Holly rap more. I'm not joking. On Collision, Ricky Starks fought Powerhouse Hobbs in the Owen semifinal. In a counter, Starks picked Hobbs off the top rope for a huge powerbomb. Hobbs caught Starks with a spinebuster off a distraction. But QT Marshall uh, jumped on the ring apron. That also distracted the referee. Hobbs consequently yelled at him with Starks running Hobbs into QT and hitting a spear for the victory. Not going to say like right winner here because either of these guys could have come out on top. The finish was patently ridiculous with QT being a straight up idiot, but it did lead Hobbs to shove him hard after the bell. QT pleaded with him. Aaron Solo played Peacemaker. He ate a spine buster. Holly then jumped in to save QT from a further beating. If Hobbs somehow remains with QTV after this, the whole thing is going to be a lost cause. But that certainly doesn't seem like the case, and that would be a huge positive. Hobbs should be destroying QT soon and then just moving on. Let's think about this booking here. He joins QTV, and they help him beat Wardlow for the TNT title. Then that entire reign is complete dog shit. He loses the title, but stays with them. And now this happens. Like, it's just pitiful stuff. Anyway, look, Starks versus Punk, it's going to bang. It's the right match. Ricky going over Hobbs here was a solid win for him. I do think the Punk match should be used to get Starks over huge. And again, I'm only talking if I had the book. If I did have it, I'd probably have Starks beat Punk. I just highly doubt that's what happens the way Punk is just filleting the hearts right now. I mean, it's it, it, it's to such a level that you have to imagine the idea is for him to get a huge cheer in Canada when he wins the Owen Cup. On Dynamite, Sky Blue fought Ruby Soho. Ruby countered Code Blue by grabbing Sky's leg and wrenching her into a single leg Boston Crab. Ruby caught Sky flying with no future and got the win as she returned to the finals of the Owen. Solid match for sure. Thought we might get some storyline development on the back end here, but this was it. So really, there's only so much we can discuss. On Rampage, the Elite fought Dark Order in a six-man tag team match. Commentary did a good job telling the Hangman Dark Order story to catch anyone up who might not have been watching at the time. They also filleted everything that happened in this match from a move standpoint, like to an asinine degree. I didn't notice that across much of the rest of AEW programming this week, but in this match, it was every single move. The spot of the match was a shooting star press by Page with Evil Uno draped off the ring apron outside. The Young Bucks hit Melter Driver for a broken fall. Uno later pulled the referee in front of himself to avoid Buckshot Lariat. Kanosuke Takeshka distracted the referee with Claudio Castagnoli hitting a huge European uppercut on Page for the upset win by Dark Order. Kenny Omega made the save. Now, these are the types of matches and storylines that will actually get me to pay attention to Rampage. This could have easily been on Dynamite, yet it was put on a show probably for a specific reason, and it was totally a worthwhile way to spend 15 minutes of time. Four stars and an A- minus for the match itself, a great win for Dark Order, and a really intriguing piece of booking moving forward. This was the best thing on Rampage that has mattered to AEW storytelling, perhaps all year. On Dynamite, Chris Jericho fought Commander, and you may ask, hey, Silver King, uh, why exactly did this match happen? You can ask me that 10,000 times, Go on. I'm never going to have an answer for you. 
Uh, Commander hit a beautiful tightrope springboard shooting star press before his standard rope walk springboard flip outside. Jericho caught another high risk with Codebreaker, then caught him flying again with a Lion Tamer for the submission when I love that Jericho used the Lion Tamer. Uh, Commander's athleticism kind of carried Jericho in that it was the most intriguing part of the entire match. Don Callis entered after the bell. And by the way, I love this new foreboding type of Don Callis entrance. It's just such a great audio-visual combination experiencing and walk down to the ring getting booed with that music playing in the background. They're absolutely crushing it. Anyway, he entered. He showed old footage of him and Jericho together in 1995. He said he wasn't trying to put pressure on Jericho, but he knew the right answer. And then it just ended there. Uh, there's definitely intrigue to this callous Jericho story, but given this took up one-sixth of the entire program, the match, the segment, the entire thing, it just kind of left a lot to be desired. Jake Hader later entered Jericho's locker room, wondering if he was really considering leaving JAS for Callus. Jericho admitted they had history, but said he needed time. Hager reminded that he joined AEW because of Jericho, and he pointed out that both of their careers are on the line with this decision. And then he took off the purple hat, handed it to Jericho, and the crowd made an audible noise at that moment. I liked that Hager was willing to call out Jericho on his shit, very appropriate for both of their characters as a final decision, obviously, was going to get made. I thought, I think a lot of people thought it would get made in the main event of Dynamite. That didn't happen. But I will say, for all the criticism that Hager receives, he's had some good big man matches, and somehow he's gotten a stupid purple hat over, and you got to give him credit for that. Later on Dynamite, in that main event segment, Callus came out uh, with the fifth members of both Blood and Guts teams set to be announced. He talked shit about Omega, so he came down, and then he fought off John Moxley at Takeshka, only for Pac to return with a chair shot to the back of Omega's head. He looked like he gained, I don't know, 10 to 15 pounds of additional muscle with all this time away. The guy looked insanely jacked. Uh, Pac said he wanted revenge for Omega shattering his nose. They wrapped a chair around Kenny's neck, with Pac ready to hit Black Arrow. When Mox asked him for any last words, Omega said, look at the screen, and so everyone just stopped. The heels just decided, we're not going to attack you anymore. We will listen to you and watch this video package that's about to air. Uh, so the video package airs. It says he's coming with highlights of Kota Abushi. After it ended, the elite without Abushi cleared the ring. Hangman Page promised to finish the rivalry at Blood and Guts. Omega said it was about more than fighting, but passion, friendship, and love. Then he promised to come for Callus before doing goodbye and goodnight for the first time in years. I haven't heard that in a long ass time. Now, in terms of the fifth members, good choice for BCC and great obvious choice for the elite. Pack coming in from out of nowhere from a storyline standpoint, it's weak, but from a match quality standpoint, it's going to be exceptionally strong. Any partial observer must admit that Pack and Ibushi, one guy who has not been in AEW for six months, half a year, and another guy who has never fought in AEW, period, those two being randomly injected into a blood feud, it's just odd. Like, Pac did give his explanation, and that helped. He had a legitimate reason for wanting to join them because he hates Omega. But Abushi was literally just a short video package announcing him, and he's doing it just because he's Kenny's friend, and they have the Golden Elite, and that whole deal. And this is a key problem with AEW. They make so many good, great, amazing matches. And Tony Khan makes so many good decisions, but he always assumes that the audience is all knowing about wrestling 
and he refuses to cater to the common fan. Ibushi showing up last week, building the story this week, and then wrestling next week, that's how you book something like this. Instead, he's a gun for hire that's going to help make Blood and Guts a straight up banger. And then what? Also, what about the entire Jericho angle? If that was not being built for Blood and Guts, how exactly is that going to play out in a satisfactory manner? Are they going to just continue this feud past Blood and Guts with Jericho somehow getting involved? Is that a completely secondary storyline? And is Blackpool Combat Club going to move on and then attack Jericho? Is it going to be BCC JAS again when Jericho decides not to go? Are we talking Jericho Takeshka as a feud? I don't know. That'd probably be pretty underwhelming. So to wrap it all up, I repeat, Pack and Ibushi, they make next week's match insanely exciting. Five-star ceiling. No doubt about that. But from a storyline standpoint, again, if you're a neutral observer, you got to admit it's just a couple of dudes being thrown into a feud that has an extensive amount of build, but has suddenly become a little random late in the process. Again, it's not random in that neither of these guys have reasons to help the teams. It's just that it's a blood feud and they're saying, okay, a couple people out of nowhere, come join it with one week left. That's really what I'm talking about. Oh, Omega also coming out to get the shit kicked out of him when the rest of the elite were there. Looking back on that, it was a ridiculous segment the way it was executed. On Collision, FTR fought Jay White and Juice Robinson in a non-title eliminator. No surprise, the action here was top tier from bell to bell. Hardly a down moment. Dax Harwood had a nice run of two German suplexes and a brain buster on White. FTR then hit a superplex splash combo for a false finish. Cash Wheeler got caught with a loaded punch from Juice straight in front of the referee. Dax stopped Blade Runner, but there was a botched breakup of Shatter Machine. FTR came back with Meltzer Driver for a broken fall. Dax hit the rebound powerbomb on White for another false finish. White caught Wheeler with Blade Runner at the end, and there were some counters. Uh, That left Dax one-on-two with Juice, catching him with a DDT for the one-two-three as White barely blocked Cash's attempt to break the fall. And let me tell you something right now. This right here was a straight up banger. AEW's match of the week at the time it ended. And thinking through to Dynamite, I think it was the match of the week, period, for AEW. Also a rare situation in which the challengers won an Eliminator match, setting up a title feud. This really should be pushed to all in, probably, but I presume we're going to get it on TV before that, given that's still six weeks or more away. Great work from all four guys. Definitely the right winners. Probably White's best work since he joined AEW. In fact, certainly his best work since he's joined AEW. I also went 4.5 stars and an A, so this one, and Braun Breaker, Isla Dragunov, uh, the two TV matches of the week, as far as I was concerned. Later backstage, the heels challenged the champions to a two out of three falls match this coming Saturday on Collision for the titles. FTR obviously accepted immediately. That's going to be a ridiculously great match. It was a good backstage segment as well. Again, it feels like this could have been on all in, but you know they're trying to get people to watch Collision, so it makes sense. On Dynamite, Swerve fought Nick Wayne. For those who do not know, the two wrestled twice in Defy with Nick obviously under 18 both times in those matches. This was his debut AEW match, given he just became of age. Darby kind of served as his cheerleader. Wayne hit a ridiculous avalanche poison rana and then a Cody cutter for a false finish because Swerve's foot was on the bottom rope. Swerve then countered an avalanche hurricanrana into a powerbomb, hitting last call for a false finish. Swerve snapped Wayne's arm backward, and then he hit the JML driver for the clean one, two, three. And that's exactly how this match should have finished. Extremely well booked for Wayne. He was able to look competitive and competent, but Swerve going over strong and a clean finish is necessary given he's an established talent. 
And Sword has taken so many L's recently that it's okay to tease it with a false finish, but at the end, you really want him to come out strong. The only negative here was they didn't linger on it because Wayne could have gotten like an ovation from the fans or something that would have given him a greater boost moving forward. But this was a fantastic national TV debut for him. Both guys work together extremely well. They know each other well. I went 3.75 stars B+. Um, I'd say it's worth watching. Again, if it's on your DVR, I wouldn't go out of my way to watch it, but it's worth watching the guy's first TV match. On Collision, Malachi Black got a promo package saying Andrade El Idolo believes his mask is the reason for his success, but taking it off gave him even more strength, and he won't be able to see how great he can be until Malachi shows him. He said together they would make sure the entire world sees how great Andrade can be. So then Andrade backstage watched this, and he said, I'm a businessman, and I don't hide behind my mask like a coward, because Black does that. He said the mask is everything to him because it represents family and culture, so taking the mask off means it's time to fight. I, If what I just said to you came across like a bunch of word salad, that's how these promos came across to me. Neither of these made a shred of sense. The guy does not wear a mask in the ring. He hasn't worn a mask in the ring since he left Mexico. He doesn't use it as a crutch because, again, he doesn't wrestle in it. House of Black also wears masks. Why are their masks okay and Andrade's is not? I was just left shaking my head at all this. It's like forcing a storyline out of nothing rather than creating an angle that is actually interesting. I think the matches will be good. I'm sure maybe they'll figure it out down the line. I am massive fans of both guys, but to me, this was super frustrating. On Collision, Miro in a tape promo said no one can hurt him because he has no one left to love, not a belt, a god, or a double-jointed hot wife. He said he can sense a big battle is coming. What the shit was this? Like Every one of these promos from him, it's the exact same thing, except now he's denouncing God instead of praising him. What are they doing with this guy? Is he going to have a storyline, a feud, anything worth like chewing on? It's so disappointing. On Dynamite, Jack Perry refused to exit his SUV, saying it was an unsafe work environment. So Hook got in the other door. Somehow Jack didn't lock the door of the SUV, uh, despite being scared. And he got a lick on him. And then I guess Jack ran out, got on the other side of the SUV as Hook left it and then drove away. What am I supposed to say here? I, I, don't, I don't even have anything for you. Uh, on Collision, Athena confronted Willow Nightingale backstage, questioning her injury and wondering whether she was just delaying another loss after dropping the NJPW strong title. Willow said she planned on winning the entire Owen and then taking the ROH title from her. Athena said she would give Willow a title match if she beats her in the Owen. She beat the champion to be able to beat the champion. That doesn't make any sense. All right, I'm just having fun with the sound drop. This one does make sense. It's a completely separate tournament. Uh, hopefully that's what happens, though. I'd like to see this match twice. Willow beating Athena first and then Athena retaining the ROH title over her. The segment was more than acceptable. Solid stuff. Not particularly great. On Rampage, Akari Shida fought Marina Shafir. Shida hit a couple big-time strikes, plus a Falcon Arrow and the Katana Kick for the win in a few minutes. This was a bunch of nothing. It had no storyline relevance. On Rampage, Chris Statlander backstage tried to do something with a sunshade that was weird. She called herself a fighting champion who put the TBS title on the line anytime. She called herself, quote, defeater of the undefeated and tried to act like she just came up with it. I said last week that we haven't heard from her and she hasn't done anything of significance since beating Jade Cargill. Okay, now you've heard from her. And she said nothing with no storyline emerging from it. They've totally wasted her momentum, just like they did with Wardlow when they strapped him up, just like they did with Powerhouse Hobbs when they strapped him up. These titles, I know they're TV titles, you can still make something of them. And the fact that they have no plan for Statlander other than 
okay, stats back, she'll end Jade's storyline and that's it. It's really frustrating. On collision, Julia Hart fought Bambi Hall. This was the only women's match on the show and Julia won with Heartless in like less than two minutes. This was even worse than WWE short matches because commentary was talking about her being impressive when she just beat a jobber. They talked about her having 24 straight wins in AEW competition. I cannot remember a single one of them. And lastly, on collision, Scorpio Sky fought Action and Andretti. Sky escaped a pinning combination and hit TKO for the win. He lifted Andretti up after the bell. This was a fine low card match. Really one of only two down points on the show beyond the women's match that we just discussed. But that's hardly a criticism because the rest of the two hours of collision was hot. So as you can tell, when it came to the big storylines primarily, I was extremely pleased with what we got from AEW this week. It was the most worthwhile five hours of television that they have produced over this last month in which they have done five hours of television per week. So this was the best representation of what AEW TV can be. And that's something for them to build on and maybe something they will be building on with All In coming up. We have to judge it week by week. Obviously, there's been weeks where Dynamite's been disappointing. Rampage almost always is disappointing. I was not fond of Collision last week. This week, I thought was a huge bounce back for that show. So again, AEW, they do seem to be operating pretty well. Um, The ratings for Rampage were nothing. Collision were pretty decent, I believe, if I remember correctly. And Dynamite, of course, we're taping this before those come out. So folks, look, that is the Thursday edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast with the Silver King on vacation, bringing this to you live from an Airbnb. I appreciate all of you listening to this episode. Of course, we will be back on Tuesday with our next WWE episode on the way out. Reminders, as always, first, that this podcast is all about Please leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, of course, you can leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all that good stuff. Also, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well. If so, you can become an official Getting Overhead by visiting buymeacoffee.com slash getting over for only five bucks a month. You get bonus audio, news posts, and much more. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It is time for the Silver King to sign off. We will be back on Tuesday with that WWE show. But at this point, I'm going to leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.